Episode 165, Mark Hirschberg, entrepreneur, chief technology officer, and author of the book, The Career Toolkit. There are so many to choose from, but I would say one of my favorites is when I put too much trust into some board members about promises to the future. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Mark Hirschberg and his book and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake165. As always, thanks for listening. And now on with the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. My guest today is Mark Hirschberg. Uh, He is the author of the book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. You can learn more about Mark and his book at thecareertoolkitbook.com, and there'll be a link in the show notes. Um, Before I tell you more about Mark, first off, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show today. Uh, I, you, you, Mark told me before we started, I, I don't have party hats or streamers or anything, but this is the 300th podcast episode that you've done over, over what, what time frame? About 15 months. Okay. So we have a very seasoned and experienced podcast guests. <laughs> excited to make this number 300. Okay. I hope this stands out. I think this will be a unique uh, conversation and Thank you again uh, for being here. But again, Mark Hirschberg, um, he's done a lot of things in his career from tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web. I may want to ask you about that too, not just the book. Um, Creating marketplaces and new authentication systems. Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s and in academia. He helped start the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program at MIT. Uh, It's dubbed the Career Success Accelerator. He teaches there annually. And uh, his connection to MIT uh, is clear and and really strong. He has a BS in physics, a BS in electrical engineering and computer science, and uh, a master's in engineering and electrical engineering and computer science focusing on cryptography. Uh, For those in the know in MIT speak, which course numbers? (laughs) So I was undergrad six and eight with an additional minor in 17 and then course six for my master's. I would have to struggle. I'm glad I didn't know if I asked myself that. Uh, Course 15 was Sloan uh, for my master's. Mechanical engineering was course two. There we go. Yep. You got it. Pulled that out of uh, the memory banks. For those who don't know, at MIT, everything is a number. All our majors are numbers. Our classes are numbers. Our buildings are numbers. We live and breathe numbers. <laughs> That's very true. Um, Mark has done a, a lot outside of numbers. Um, at Harvard Business School, he helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. So I guess there's, there's more numbers there. But um, in that other category, he works with many nonprofits, including Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corals. Here are some interesting tidbits. He was one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers in the country. And he now lives in New York City, where he's known for his social gatherings, including his annual Halloween party, as well as his diverse cufflink collections. So 
so I'm an inquisitive person. So many questions I want to ask you. Um, first off, and before we get into the favorite mistake, how, how do you how do you get ranked as a ballroom dancer? What is that process? You go to ultimately the national championships, and that's kind of the final word on it. There's no no kind of tournaments and ranking. When you feel confident in yourself, you show up to nationals and just compete at the highest level for which you think you can win. There are different levels of experience, but by the end, I was in pre-champ and champ level. Wow. And do I remember right? Is this where it started? Isn't there a ballroom dancing class at MIT? There is an MIT ballroom club and also an MIT ballroom team. They're separate at MIT and most places are together. And what most people probably don't know, not only do we have a ballroom team, when I was there, we were one of the biggest in the country. We were arguably one of the best in the country. We've had multiple national champions come out of it and just really fantastic team, fantastic coaches. I was so glad to be a part of it. That's very cool. Um, Cufflink connect, uh, the, the Cufflink collection, that's harder to say than it should have been, my mistake. Um, were, were any of those Cufflink purchases a mistake or do you love them all? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't think any would qualify as a mistake. And now I'll note with my Cufflinks, I have over 400 pairs. Most people think you have a square, a knot, the standard things. That's boring. I have food. I have grilled cheese and pizza and bagels, lox and cream cheese. I have drinks. I have Coke. I have Starbucks. I have planes, trains, automobiles. I have Halloween and Christmas and Easter holidays. Anytime there is some day, because every day is like National Adopt-A-Cat Day or any activity I'm doing, I am ready with a pair of cufflinks appropriate to the occasion. Now, I'm wearing a, a short sleeve polo shirt. Do you have some cufflinks on now? I do have some cufflinks on now. And now these are, I'm holding them up for those watching a video. This is the Career Toolkit Cufflink. When my book came out, a friend of mine took the images from the cover and created a custom pair of cufflinks for me. That's pretty cool. What a, that's a gift from somebody who knows you well. <laughs> yes, indeed. And your love for cufflinks. That's great. Okay, so Mark, now that we've covered a little bit about ballroom dancing and cufflinks, let's get to the main topic at hand here. You know, the different things you've done in your career, what would you say is your favorite mistake? There are so many to choose from. But I would say one of my favorites is when I put too much trust into some board members about promises to the future. Mm. So what was, what was the context for that? Tell, tell us about that. In this company, I'm going to use made-up names and genders. There's Alex, the CEO, and two board members, Bob and Chris. Now, I joined the company, and within about a month, the company hit revenue issues. Now, nothing to do with my joining. The CEO made certain decisions, and that was leading to some revenue problems, we had email marketing as one of our major revenue streams. The thing about email marketing is if you're a little short on revenue, you just over email the list. You send a couple extra emails and get your revenues up. And that works in the short term, but you get churn on your lifts. People start to say, you know, get too many emails. And long term, you're borrowing from the future and you get yourself into trouble. Now, this CEO, Alex, unfortunately did that. And so over the course of the next six months or so, 
revenue kept going down. Our customers were unhappy because they saw our email list was shrinking, fewer clicks for them. We started having multiple rounds of layoffs. While the CEO decided to take a vacation, Bob came along. Bob was one of the board members. And Bob and Chris are both personal friends of the CEO. This isn't some business deal. They go way back. The, the CEO actually owned the company, a majority of it. So didn't even need control from the board members. The CEO owned it. Bob came along. Bob noticed and said, Mark, I noticed you haven't updated your LinkedIn profile. Now, one thing I've learned is when I take a new job, wait a month or two because you never know when you set foot in if it's really what they sold it as. And I kept holding off because I knew this is this is not good. And Bob figured out what I was thinking and why. And so he said, let me take you out to lunch and sat me down and said, look, we know it's time for Alex to go. We just have to talk Alex into this. Again, Alex is the majority shareholder and founder. So it's a bit of an issue. You can't force Alex out. Bob said, look, we know it's just a matter of time. And we see you and this one other executive, you two are the leaders of the future. We need you to drive it forward. Please don't go. Please stay. We're here. What kind of support can I give you? thought, okay, well, if that's how the board feels, you know, I'm going to stay. I'm going to commit. And I stayed. And I kept going even through a few more rounds of layoffs. Then Chris came in. Eventually, Alex left. Chris came in. And I sat Chris down. I said, look, we've rebuilt this system under I was losing my, my team left and right, laying them off. I said, we built the entire tech stack. And I laid out a whole bunch of new product directions we can go in. Here's some new revenue streams. Here's a bunch of things we can do. And within a few weeks, Chris said, thank you, and let me go. And within a couple weeks after that, the rest of my department was either fired or quit. Now, I ran the product and engineering team. But in this case, what Chris saw was, I don't want to spend any more money on technology. We are just a marketing company. You got the technology in a good place. It used to take us about 12 people to keep the technology department afloat. I got down to two people by doing a lot of improvements to the system and using some off-the-shelf stuff. And Chris just looked at it and said, great, you're just going to free up some cost. I'm going to focus and turn us into a more marketing-oriented company instead of the tech company we've been promising. And it's a reminder to me, I had seen this lesson once or twice before, but this was the biggest reminder. Just because someone promises something to you in your career, your boss, a more senior leader, they at best might even sincerely mean it, but doesn't mean they can deliver it. And at worst, they're just stringing you along because they need you for today. So it was a reminder to me, be careful who you trust. Mm. So when you talk about, you know, something not being in writing, like what, what in a situation in a role like that, what sort of commitments could be in writing? Is it a matter of an employment contract or like having some sort of you know, strategy and plan that they weren't going to pivot away from technology? Could they anticipate that to put it in writing? It's a gray area. I certainly could have said, I need an employment contract. I need a guarantee and put in writing. They may or may not have gone for it. Now, realistically, oftentimes when people take jobs, I'm not talking about my situation specifically, but we hear about people, you're going to take a job and the hiring manager says, oh, if you join, we promise this, you'll get to work on these projects. You'll get to interact with these people. Here are the things we're offering. 
that can't always go into an employment contract. It's just not something you're going to put in there. What I recommend for people to do is first, at least get an email. At least say, look, I, I know it's not in the contract, but email me. The understanding is in three months, I'm going to be on this new project. And why you want that is because if your boss during those three months transfers to a different department, leaves the company, and your new boss comes in, you can say, look, here's the expectation. I'm not just making this up. Here's some evidence. Now, it's not legally binding, but morally, it's showing something. I think here, even if I couldn't get anything legal, perhaps saying, I want to hear from the other board members. I want to be clear on this. Now, even then, we had yet another round of layoffs. After this, the situation worsened. So it could have been he was sincere. And then just it was a new reality by the time Chris took over. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I can't know for certain. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you used, um, I think there were two elements of the story there that make me think of the balance between short-term decisions and long-term decision-making. So th- this idea of short-term, we're going to send more emails, but then that has some, not even long-term effect, maybe even fairly immediate negative effect. And then this idea of, well, we're not going to spend on tech anymore. Was that, was, I mean, you know, trying to separate yourself from it, was that short-sighted or was that just that, that was a valid strategy that just didn't fit? with what you would have been doing? It was de facto short-sighted, I think, given the fact that the company was then shrinking over the coming years. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to say we don't want to be a tech company. In fact, most companies who say we're a tech startup, no, you're not. You're a company that uses tech. I think of WeWork as an example that was framed as a tech company. Like, no, it's, it's real estate, right? Exactly. Even let's take a company, the ones who send you that monthly package of cosmetics or food or whatever. They're not a tech company either. They're a product marketing company. They use technology, but my dentist uses technology. My dentist has a website. Dentist is a tech <laughs> company either. Right. So tech companies say our tech is really what is driving us in a unique way. Now, we were a media company. Media and tech blur, but it's fine to say tech isn't really our competitive advantage. In this particular case, because we were a number two or number three to other people in the category, I think the important thing to do was to leverage tech to gain some advantages that could put us into a number one spot, and that wasn't done. And so I think that was a mistake. Now, perhaps if the money had been spent wisely marketing, maybe that would have been the right strategy. But certainly I was hired when they said we need to be more of a tech company, we're not today, we want to be. And so that's why I showed up. Yeah. I mean, a general question, and and, and this may connect a little bit to some of the advice in your book, is is there an expectation in tech land, uh, for lack of a better term, that there will be a lot of moving from company to company, you know, the era of working for Big Blue or you know, your whole career at IBM or my, you know, my dad is an electrical engineer, worked 40 years at General Motors. Is there an expectation of, well, things change, you've got to be flexible, always be half ready to move on? Is, is, what, what are your thoughts on something like that? I think that's true. And that's not tech specific. Now, I'll first note that concept of that lifetime employment that we think about our parents having, that never existed. The average tenure at companies, when you go back mid-century, I 
think it was either 4.7 or 5.1 years. Today's data, it's a little less. It's either 4.1 or 4.7. It, it changed a little. It got slightly shorter, but not meaningfully. And so it was a myth, this concept of lifetime employment. So it's gone down a bit. Now, I will say in my particular area of startups, now startups and tech often correlate, but really startups, startups, you have a lot more volatility. If you join, for example, Google or Goldman Sachs, well, they're going to be around in 10 years. I guarantee it. If you join an early stage startup, even if they just got 10 million funding, there's no guarantee they're around in three years. And even if they are, I've been through multiple pivots at companies. And sometimes I've said, hey, this is a great pivot. This is the right thing to do, but it's no longer right for me. It's time to part ways. So I think there's a lot more volatility in our careers when we're in early stage startups and that causes higher turnover rates. Yeah. So one other question I want to ask about, you know, your story and scenario before we you know, move forward and talk more about uh, your book, The Career Toolkit. You know, so from what you learned from the story that you told us here, you said you had seen this lesson or lived through some of that a couple of times before, of, of, you know, things not being in writing. Can, can you sh- share a little bit more about, you know, as you moved forward in your career, how have you been able to apply that lesson to maybe try to avoid situations that, that were bad like that? I'll give you the example when I first learned it. My first company out of school, I took a job and we were negotiating my compensation. I thought, you know, instead of trying to get a couple thousand more now, I think I'm going to really impress them. So I asked, can you do an assessment in six months? The boss said, okay, that's fine. We'll do it then. Six months came and went and nothing happened. And I thought, well, we'd said six months. He's probably just busy. He's, it'll happen next week, next week. I didn't really speak up. Now, I know him well enough that I am sure that was not intentional. He probably just forgot. Just something on his list and got busy. And so that's a case of just honest. uh, There's a famous quote, never ascribe to malice. that That which can be explained by incompetence, Handlin's razor. And I think that was the case. He just honestly forgot. I need to do more about speaking up for myself. So I learned to be more proactive. At some times, I even would make notes or put something on a calendar. But here was, I think, a much bigger level where it had to deal with overall corporate strategy and board members. Yeah. Hanlon's razor applies in so many situations. I, my wife and I use the informal version of it sometimes in situations. Are they incompetent or are they screwing us? <laughs> yep. It's hard to tell sometimes. Like one time we, we tried buying a house that was being built. And then long story short, you end up at that point where like, is the home builder incompetent or are they screwing us? And, you know, we walked away. So be it. And certainly if you see a pattern at a certain point, you say it doesn't matter because I don't want to continue this relationship. It's not worth the engagement because who knows what else is going to go wrong intentionally, maliciously, or just haphazardly. I still don't want that volatility. And now, and now that I think about it, we're, if we're posing that question and we're not, we're, we're not falling back on Hanlon's razor of the never, say so we're sitting there debating it and thinking through it. We shouldn't be. Never attribute to, uh, it's never attribute to malice. Never, never ascribe to malice that which can be explained by mere stupidity. Yeah. 
so yeah, that home built, yeah, there's probably stupidity on the part of the home builder. So we'll, we'll move beyond from that home buying mistake. That's a, that's a, that's, that's a different episode there. Um, before we talk about the book a little bit, uh, again, our guest is Mark Hirschberg. Um, I've got to ask you, because this is such a interesting phrase in your bio, tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web. I've got to ask you, like, what, what are you allowed to tell us um, about that type of work? <laughs> My graduate work was in cryptography, which is used to secure information. It's why you can put your credit card online and feel safe. A lot of the work I've done at cybersecurity companies, we are protecting your information. We're building bigger vaults, so to speak. In this particular company, we were doing intelligence gathering. I would always liken it to being Paul Revere. Think about Paul Revere. He may not have directly fought the British. Maybe he did later, but the story we all know, but he said, the British are coming and told us, was it by land or by sea, that let the American forces be better deployed for maximum efficiency. And so that little bit of knowledge gave us a really good ROI. And that's what we would do. We'd discover the people who were our adversaries. So bad actors on the dark web, terrorists, cyber criminals. What were they planning? When? How? And that would be information used by our customers, ranging from various government agencies to large corporations who wanted to best marshal their defenses against their risks. So this is more like the hackers are coming. Yes, that, that is a good description. We just shout the hackers are coming. The hackers are coming. Yeah. Oh, um, so uh, you, you ended up teaching. Tell me you know, before we talk about the book, how did you end up teaching and working with undergrads at MIT when it comes to career planning? Yeah, it's interesting. And that leads into the book. When I started my career, I was a software engineer and early on realized I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer in charge of the engineers. When I began to think about what makes someone a good CTO, I realized it's not just about being the best engineer in terms of solving the technical problems fastest. There were all these other skills, leadership, networking, negotiating, team building. No one ever taught me these skills. So I began to develop it in myself, quickly realized I wanted to develop this in my whole team because everyone benefits, not just senior leaders. And as I trained up my team around the same time, MIT had done some surveys of companies and said, what are the skills you're looking for? Very same set. And by the way, that's not unique to MIT. I've seen other universities. They've come to the same conclusions. And these skills aren't just for college students. These are skills for everyone companies want to hire at all levels. So MIT said, well, it's time for us to put together a program to do this. I heard about, I reached out, I said, I have some material I've developed for my team. I thought it'd be a one-time conversation, but they asked me to help create some of the content and then asked me to help teach. And so it's an example that was in my original career plan, but when the door opened, I said, let me take a look. And I think this is a path I want to go down. So for the past two decades, I've now also been teaching at MIT in parallel to my CTO career. So it's a great way for you to give back to a university that I'm sure means a lot to you. It has been wonderful. I give back. I help students at MIT and elsewhere and in other communities. It's also just so rewarding. As an author, I can reach more people, but you get trickles. You might see a review on Amazon, which we all appreciate, or you might get an occasional email. But when I'm doing the class, you get that real-time feedback. 
I always say I could see the light bulbs go on in their heads and it is such a wonderful feeling. Well, that's great. And uh, the book title again is the career toolkit, essential skills for success that no one taught you. And the you in that sentence, that that's not just uh, for new graduates. This book is for people mid-career, different stages of their career. That's right. And certainly if you're right out of school, this is fantastic. It's a graduation gift uh, very often. But if you're in your 30s, 40s, and you're saying, I wish I was better at networking, I wish I had a better sense of my career, I get better at leadership or communication, this helps. The number one comment, if you look at the Amazon reviews, is I wish I had this book 20 years ago. So even people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s have said this book has been helpful to me. I just wish I had it sooner. Yeah. So when you talk about networking, um... I think that you you have a story. Um, I, I you told me about when we we had talked previously. I want to invite you to tell it again. You, kind of a networking mistake, a bonus mistake from your own life and career. And I've had many of these as well, but one that stands out. When I finished my master's thesis, my thesis advisor said, "Oh, let's go show it to Tim." And he's referring to Tim Brenners Lee, the man who invented the World Wide Web. He's based at MIT. I think he still is. We provide offices for the W3C consortium. And so he said, let's go over, walked me over, brought me into Tim's office and said, this is my student, Mark Hirschberg. He just did this really interesting thesis. Here's the topic. And we chatted for five minutes. And that was it. And I was 23, 24. I didn't really know what to do. And it was just that one five-minute conversation. Never spoke to him again. Now, he probably wasn't quite the level he is today, but still, he was very well known by that time as the man who invented the World Wide Web. And what I should have done, what I now know to do, is to say, hey, I would love to chat more. I'd love to hear about what you're working on. See if there are ways of my research could be helpful to you, a way to continue the conversation, maybe not on the spot, but to leave the door open to build that relationship over time. Instead, I just walked away. I had no direct follow-up. And there have been times years later, even, in fact, a few years ago, it would have been great to reach out to him and say, I want to talk to you about this project. But at this point, I'm a total stranger to him. Mm. So it sounds like there's, uh, I mean, do, do, did you, do people struggle with, like, what, what, what's that hook for a deeper conversation? Or like, I, I imagine you might think like, well, I, am I bothering him? Am I taking up his time? versus trying to find a way to establish more of a connection? Do, do you have advice you know, uh, for, for, for others who, let's say they, they get to meet somebody who they admire, somebody who's influential, what, what can they do to try to foster a relationship with them? Yeah, think, think to that famous parable of the mouse taking the thorn out of the lion's paw. When you meet that big person, you don't want to do what just about every salesperson does, which is oh, here's what I want. I want to sell you this. I want to get this. I want to fill my need. Instead, talk about that person's favorite subject, them. What's going on with you? What projects are you working on? What are your challenges? What are your needs? What can I do to help you? Find that thorn. Maybe you can pull it out, maybe not, but start talking about it and figure out what you can do to help the other person. And this is true for anyone you meet, not just when it's the big famous person, 
one of the things to do when you are developing relationships, which is the essence of networking, is think about what can I do to help you? If you have that mentality, the doors will naturally open. You get an interesting conversation the other person wants. You get a way to follow up with what's relevant to the person, and you can build that relationship. That sounds like great advice, whether it's relationships or sales or even thinking about a startup. It's not so much about what I can build, but how am I finding a thorn that a customer, a potential customer, urgently needs to pull out, right? Exactly. In fact, the number one mistake I see in startups is the golden hammer, right? I have a hammer. Oh, well, that kind of looks like a nail on that one, that one. Start with, so what problems do you have? Can I solve it? No? Okay. Hey, best of luck to you. I'm going to move on. But this next person, oh, she's got a problem. I know how to solve that. There's my first customer. And I'll bet there's more like her. Yeah. This is a golden hammer with you know Bluetooth Bluetooth connectivity now. You, there's an app that'll tell you how many times, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Stumbled through my attempt at making a, that, a joke that's about an example of over-engineering, <laughs> right? So let's throw technology into it and magically it's better. You know what? I don't need to know how many times I swung the hammer that day. That's cute, but I don't think it's a real value. And that's an example. Just I can, but not I need. Well, I tell a, a quick story. It's making me think of a toothbrush that I bought within the last year. I probably paid an extra $20, which was a, a complete waste for this electric toothbrush that also did have Bluetooth connectivity into an app. And the app would tell me how many, how often and how long I had brushed my teeth. And then after like two weeks, it disconnected. And I'm like, I, I can't be bothered with like rebooting the toothbrush or updating the firmware or whatever. It works, you know, with the brushing. That's fine. But I'll probably never, I should have thought that one through a little bit more. I don't know why I fell into that trap of the Bluetooth connected toothbrush being better. And now as a product designer, I would think, You'd want the app or the toothbrush to start being annoying in some way, sending a reminder or beeping or doing something where you say, it's a pain to reconnect, but it's more of a pain not to. <laughs> and that's what's going to motivate you to reconnect. Yeah. Um, so back to the book again, the career toolkit. And when, when, when you talk about ex- essential skills, um, out of the list, is, is there one essential skill that's most essential? Or is it more a matter of a number of skills that would benefit people's careers? I get that question a lot. I have a blog post on this called Leadership is Not Atomic. Because whether we think about any one of these skills where people say, teach me to be a leader, learning to be a leader or learning to be more effective at work, that's like saying, make me a better basketball player or pick whatever sport you want. There's lots of ways to be a great basketball player. It could be your shooting, your rebounding, your dribbling, your court sense. You don't just focus on one thing. And really with these skills, unless you say, I am the world's greatest communication expert, that's all I focus on. But then you're not probably executing, you're probably a consultant. For most of us, it's a combination of these skills and getting better in all of them across the board. Not that you're an expert in all of them, but getting a little bit better gives you this very large return on your investment. So there's, there's skills and, and yeah, leadership and if you will, 
soft skills. Like I know one of my previous guests, Tom Peters, would cringe or chastise me for you know thing, thing, soft skills is diminishing when these are probably the most important um, skills as opposed to things that are computational or analytical. Um, we call them firm skills. Firm so skills. Stronger and of course has that play on words because these are the skills that will help you <laughs> in corporate America. Yes. So that's a, that's a good phrase, not soft skills, firm skills. Um, so there are a couple of the questions I'm going to ask you. I mean, there, there are things that might be mistakes that people might make when they're new to the workplace or even later in their career. Is it a mistake to sign things like confidentiality agreements or non-compete clauses, or is that just something you, you really have no choice about? It's, it's not abnormal. It's probably something you're going to do, and I've certainly signed plenty of them. Now, I'd say confidentiality, that's pretty straightforward. And usually there's not a lot of implications to that. Uh, let me preference what I'm about to say with, I am not a lawyer. Check with a lawyer on all of this. Uh, also know that things will vary state to state, particularly the non-compete. In some states, they're nearly impossible to enforce, and others are easier. But this comes down to your negotiating power. If you're 24 years old, you probably don't have a lot of leverage against the company to say, I don't want that non-compete clause, or I'll take it, but you have to promise me this much on exit or something to compensate me for that. If you're 20 years in your field and you are a deep expert, say, I don't want to sign it, and you don't get me without that, and there's not a lot of other people like me, you have more leverage to control that. Now, that's probably also where they care a lot more about your non-compete. Because you are that expert if you go to someone uh, against it. But I really look at those as just, that's a clause to negotiate. That's like the same as saying, oh, I need you to work 80 hours instead of 40. Well, if you want to pay me $10 million a year, I'll do 80-hour weeks, perhaps. We're just going to negotiate that against everything else. Are, are there other common negotiating mistakes that are made? Like, I, I the little bit of negotiation education or, or, or coaching I've had, there's one kind of rule of thumb that comes to mind. I wonder if the, this still holds true that, that you shouldn't be the first one to name a number. Let's say if there's a salary discussion and they ask, well, what, what is your salary expectation or salary requirements? Is, is, is that good advice to say, well, I don't, to think, how do I ask questions that has them name a number first? Or is, is, do you not agree with that advice? Yeah, I, it's not universally true. And I talk about this in the book. It comes down to what's referred to as a first mover advantage or a second mover advantage. But whether the first or second mover has the advantage, it depends on information asymmetry and how much you understand about the realm in which you're negotiating. So it's, it's a little more subtle. Although I'd say probably the biggest mistake in negotiations is the failure to even try. Most things in life are negotiable, not just our salaries. Even when you go into a store, if you're buying three of some item, they have a list price. You think, well, I just pay three X. Well, you can try asking the manager, hey, buying three of them, how about a 5% discount? Turns out you might be able to get that. And what's the worst case? Are they going to say, how dare you? You've insulted me. Get out of my store. <laughs> Yeah. No, worst cases, they say, I'm sorry, I can't store policy. Okay, you're no worse off. And this is true of so many circumstances. As long as you're respectful, 
You don't say, I demand 5%. If you're respectful in anything that we try to negotiate, usually you wind up better off or at least not worse off. So it's always worth trying. Yeah. And, and whether that's um, salary or vacation time or days, I guess nowadays is probably a big negotiating point. How many days a week can I work from home? If not all together at some point. Yeah. If not, not asking is guaranteed failure, I guess. Now, some of those things, of course, may be set at the corporate level and they say our policy is three weeks vacation take it or leave it, or this much work from home. In fact, if they start to make exceptions, the company can run afoul of, I noticed the men on average have more vacation time. Now you got a big lawsuit. So you just say, these are the rules, we're sticking to it. So when we negotiate, whether it's compensation or anything else, we have to recognize what can be on the table, what may not be. Now they might not be upfront about that, but we have to recognize there may be different different things in negotiation that have different amounts of flexibility. Good point. Um, final question for you, Mark. I mean, uh, it, what advice you either give the MIT students or it's in the book or both about somebody who ends up at a company where there's some really ethically slippery or questionable things going on or, you know, CEO making promises about technology that seems not to be true or, bad behavior among, you know, uh, the executive ranks. These are, you know, there are, you know, people can fill in their own mind. There are different case studies from tech companies that have had books or series or, or movies made about them. But like, if somebody is in a situation, let's say that's less glaringly an ethical problem, if, if somebody's even wondering, like something about this feels wrong, how, how do we navigate those situations to figure out is this something I need to get away from? It's funny, as you're giving examples and certain companies came to mind as we're recording this in March of 2020 and certain shows coming out about famous companies. But in fact, whenever you're listening to this, might be a year from now, five years from now, there's probably some other company that first came to mind who we might be referring to because it's all too common. The, the simple rule is when in doubt, get out. As I've gotten older, I've realized life is too short. You can't get back your morality. It's hard to cross that line. Now, I recognize, I talk about this in the book, it's harder when I was 26 and thinking, oh, I don't, that doesn't feel quite right. It wasn't something totally horrible. I also thought, I just started this job a few months ago. Do I really want to leave? And that's not going to look good. I'm fortunate to be at a point in my career, I can just walk away. I had a company try to hire me recently for some consulting, and my gut just said, no, something's off. I, you know what? Not going to do this. And I'm fortunately at a place I can do that. Not everyone is. But really, what you want to do is to think through this ahead of time. The analogy I use is think fire drills. If right now in your building, a fire alarm went off, you're going to say, okay, fire alarm. I know what to do. Walk, don't run. Don't use the elevator, use the stairs. We've trained for this. We've thought about it. If we never had, you could imagine everyone just panics. Everyone's like, oh my God, fire, run, throw people out of the way. We've all learned, hey, you know, we thought through this. We know how it works. We know what to do. When we face ethical situations, it's usually when there's pressure. It's usually when you have to get some revenue number and money's tight or things are stressful or you're resource constrained. It might not be 
seconds as with a fire, but there's that pressure, there's a time constraint. And so it's easy to just run and react as opposed to saying, hey, we've thought about this. We have ideas of what to do. So I recommend people ahead of time, think through some of these circumstances, talk about it with friends and colleagues and set up your guardrails, set up where you say, hey, right here, this is where I take the stairs, not the elevator. At this point, when this alarm goes off, that's what I do. And that's going to make it easier in those stressful circumstances. Well, Mark, thank you so much for sharing not just your your story, but your uh, advice. And I encourage people to go check out the book, again, uh, by Mark Hirschberg, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Uh, The website is thecareertoolkitbook.com. One other, I'm going to ask you one other question before we go, Mark, a fun question based on your bio. You know, with your Halloween parties, I'm guessing Halloween costumes are important to you. Do you have um, a a best costume or a favorite costume of, of ones that you've worn at your party? I'll give you my top three. Okay. Financial bailout. Bill from Schoolhouse Rocks. <laughs> and Cougar victim. Uh, not the literal cat victim, but so quote unquote answer, Cougar victim. Well, the answer is yes to how you're thinking about it. What I did is took an old shirt, ripped it up with claw marks and ripped off part of a sleeve and then got one of my female friends to put on lipstick and put kisses all over the shirt and my face. <laughs> so it was a combination of both. And uh, that was a very popular costume. So then the bill, I'm just a bill. I can picture that one clearly from Schoolhouse Rock. What, 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 what the, the first concept so, costume sounds conceptual. So how, how did that translate into the costume physically. It was very conceptual. I was in a suit with a parachute. So I had a backpack on with a parachute coming out of it. The parachute itself was made out of the actual financial bailout bill in 2008, as well as big stock certificates from Bear Stearns and I think another company. I had George Bush $0 bills stuffed in my pockets. <laughs> And on the backpack, I had the treasury insignia, Operation Golden Parachute, no millionaire left behind. (laughs) Well, that's a costume that would really, were you in New York at the time? Were there some Wall Street folks uh, in your group of friends? How was that received? I I was in New York and there were plenty of people who worked in finance who did appreciate the costume. (laughs) My wife and I, a couple of years ago, before the pandemic, were both really frequent business travelers. And back then it was international. So we came to a party with friends as zombie business travelers. So we had the pajamas that they give you on uh, you know, the airlines when you're flying internationally, kind of dirtied up and ripped and zombified. And my wife had somebody do this really good zombie makeup on her face. But so our, our friends who were, business tra- who were not business travelers kind of looked at us like, wait, huh? We, we, we don't get it. So I don't know. It made us laugh a lot. So maybe that's enough. Those of us who spend plenty of time traveling for work, plenty of times on planes. Yeah, we get, in fact, I I was first thinking, did you mean zombie as in someone tried to eat my brains or zombie as in I've just traveled for 36 hours straight and I'm half jet lagged. It was meant to be kind of a combination of both with some of that makeup and the scars and everything for my wife's face, especially. Yeah, I, I love costumes like that. My rule is 
I will not just take a store-bought costume. I can buy components, but I need to create it myself. Yeah. Well, that is, that's fun. So thank you for sharing a little bit more about that. Uh, again, our guest, Mark Hirschberg, uh, the book is The Career Toolkit. Thanks for being a guest here today. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, congrats, number 300. <laughs> thank you. On, on the books. Thank you. Well, again, thanks to Mark Hirschberg for being our guest today. To learn more about the Career Toolkit and everything about Mark, look for links in the show notes, or you can go again to markgraven.com slash mistake165. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. 